All right. This morning, I'm going to, I'm going to speak a little bit of a follow-up from last week. So if you weren't here last week, my apologies, but don't worry, it will all be self-explanatory as we go along. But I want to, I want to clarify some things and I want to um, hopefully bring some, some direction. But I want to ask that you be patient with me because what I want to do this morning is I want to shift some mindsets. I want to present a, a different way of looking at two key uh, things in our, in our faith, sin and salvation. And I want to just take a moment and I, trust me, I, I did think through the fact of we're coming up to Easter. Do I prepare um, Easter Sunday? Do I speak about Jesus coming in? And I, I did want to do that. However, if we don't get this, we miss the power of the cross. If we don't understand what it means to be saved and what it means to, to not live in sin and the difference between sin in the New Testament, then we miss the power of the cross. Jesus, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you young, you young youth guys, you're down here with me. Quietly, get pumped about it. I'll get you some Greek words you can put on that piece of paper, I promise. If we don't get this, we will lose the picture of the cross, right? We will lose the, the incredible power that Jesus actually went to the cross for, right? The, the, the challenge is Jesus didn't just go so that we could wait it out and go to heaven, right? Jesus didn't die for us so that we can wait it out and just go to heaven. That's not the reality of the cross, right? Why? Because we would have heard Jesus say when he started his ministry, repent and wait, one day heaven will come. But he didn't say that. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, repent, because it starts right now. We will bring the glory of the heavenly realm to the earth realm, and we will change what this place looks like. But the challenge is, is that we get to this position where we, we, somebody gets saved, and we say, okay, you're saved, well done, congratulations. We clap and cheer, and we say, your sin has been removed. You're no longer, you're no longer a filthy sinner. You have been brought into to the kingdom, well done, and we get pumped. And then the first time we see them fall over or stuff up or do something they used to do, we bring them into an office and we say, you need to stop sinning. And the challenge with that for me is, as a, as a new believer, especially as a young person, I was thinking to myself, but my sin's been removed, right? Gone as far as the east is from the west. Why do I have to now try and stop myself from sinning? And I never really got a clear answer until... Um, I actually started going to Crossing Point, which is, Brad is here this morning, so I just want to um, honor you, bro, because this, this teaching changed my life, but it was the, the simplicity of the, the power that God revealed in the cross. Because what we do in our world is that we have so many Christians who are so focused on managing their sin that they become, to be frank, useless in the kingdom. Because they're so caught on, I did a little thing wrong, now I've got to go back and try and fix it and, and ask God for forgiveness. And I do another little thing wrong and I go back and ask God. And I do another little thing wrong and we go around and around and around and around. And then we look and we go, I don't understand why the gates of hell aren't being pushed backwards and they're actually coming on us. Because all of the people are circling and circling and circling this management of sin. They're staying entrapped and encased. But God says that his word brings freedom. But the more I read it, the, the, the least things I'm allowed to do and the more encased I feel of fear from stuffing up. 
but it's because we misunderstand what it was Paul was actually writing to the Romans. See, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, one, having not been there, but to two groups of people, to the Jews and the Gentiles. So when you read through Romans, you have to understand who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to the Jew or is he speaking to the Gentile? Why? Because when he speaks to the Jews, it's, it's not instantly applicable to us. Why? Because you're not a Jew. So he's speaking, when he speaks to the Gentiles, then we have to understand, okay, what is he actually saying? We did that um, Bible masterclass, and it seems, it seems like a lot of work, but when you start to understand the author, who he's writing to, why they're writing it, what words are they using, what particular things stand out, who are they talking about, all of a sudden you start to understand how to now apply it to my life. Because you can go and you can get stuck in Leviticus and start reading all these things and go, well, I don't understand how I'm supposed to do this. I've already cut my beard this week and I'm already in trouble. But I, I, I put something to you last week and I took it from Romans 6 verse 11. I said, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, that we have to consider ourselves. We get ourselves in a position where we have to decide what are we going to do in this moment. And I want to just take you, if you've got a Bible, go to Deuteronomy for me, Deuteronomy 30. I started in my notes with just one verse. And then I read above that and I added that. And then I read above that and I added that. And then I read above that and I ended up just going, we actually need the whole thing here because it brings the picture. But Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Sorry, I could have told you 30 before you went all the way to the front. But you're there now. So just go a few pages. Deuteronomy 30, chapter 30, verse 11. It says this. For this commandment that I commanded, command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, we will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you today by loving the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord, your God, will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. The first thing this verse says is that it's not in heaven, nor is it on a far distant land, right? He's explaining 
to Israel. He's explaining to the generations that follow Isaac, sorry, the generations that follow Abraham, Isaac, that it's not in heaven and it's not too far away. But before you, there were two choices. It's actually in you. I've put the word in you. I've put the, the way of life in you and it's not distant and far away. What can we do with that? We can say then that Christianity is not just about getting to heaven. Why? Because he says right here previously to Jesus coming and saying, behold, repent and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, I've put it in you so that you can obtain it now. Why? Because that will bring you into the promised land. He says, I've put in you the things of heaven. I've put in you the word of God. I've put in you blessings and or curses. You get to decide and choose where it goes. So everything that we operate as Christians, this is where that verse from Romans comes back to say, consider is the same thing that God told right here in this verse and said, in you is the decision. So right now in, in our world that we live in today, when we have to consider, it's God saying, I've put before you blessings and curses and you get to make the decision. Either you choose one or you choose the other. And what will one do? One will bring life and one will bring death. One will allow you to come into your promises. The other will keep you from the things that I have for you. See, we have to remember in Psalms, God said that he has written a scroll with our lives on it. He's written what our life will look like. He's written all of the things that we have before us. But we get the freedom to choose because that's free will. In his love, he allows us to either walk in his promises and purposes or not. And when you begin to look at this and wind it back, we think, well, yeah, that's either choose God or don't choose God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have put in you blessings and I've put before you blessings and curses. It's not one decision that we make. And I'm going to show you that in a minute. But what we have to do now is everywhere that we go, we have to continue to choose between blessings or curses. How do we know that? Because we've seen, all of us have seen in our life the times where we've chose the good things and times where we've chose the bad things. And we've brought death upon our life in that area. And then we've brought life upon our life in that area. Can everyone had a go at that at some point in their life, right? So what I want to do is I want to show you something because to understand this, we have to understand how we're made up, right? And what, and what is, is taken from this is that the Israelites didn't live their life to one day go to heaven. Why? Because God had told them, don't worry, it's not there that, you, that, that you're waiting for, it's in you. They knew that they would go to that place, but they knew that it was in them. They weren't waiting. This, this idea of get saved so that you can go to heaven one day, that's a, that's a Western... Uh, Without opening a, mat, a large can of worms, it's a Western pagan understanding. Right? Think about all the other religions, right? Die on the battlefield with a sword in your hand so that you can go to Valhalla. Do enough stuff here so that you can go to an island with virgins in it. Do like any one that you choose, they're all rooted on this understanding of live a good life here and get a good reward here. But Jesus came and said, no, I'm going to put the good life in you. He, he, he flipped the script. Right? He changed what we thought it was going to be. And now all the other things that come along are made up by man. That's why they're imperfect. That's why they fall away. But we have to understand something. And I'm going to show you from these two verses that the, the, the Hebrews understood that we were made up as three-part beings. Right? We see in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division between soul, spirit, 
and of joints and marrow or body and discerning the thoughts. So what we have to understand is that us as humans are made up of three parts, our spirit, our soul, and our body, right? Made in the image of the Father, right? So it's fitting that we be made in three parts, right? Spirit, soul, body. The reason this is important is because other verses start to make more sense as we go along. So <clears throat> the first one is that we are made, forgive my uh, webbed hand man that I found. And I was, took way too long doing this that I couldn't pass these slides with enough time to jest to fix them. So you've got to just deal with my slide making, not fancy Jess's slides. But no, Jess is going to struggle the whole way through because nothing's aligned. It's all like just my crazy brain. So he, no, he's got five. This one's just a bit webbed. That's webbed and that's a little bit webbed as well. But it's a human. Okay, there's a picture of a human with an arrow pointing off its head and it says soul, right? So the, the, the first part of, just in my explanation, the first part is our soul, right? And a soul is our mind, will, and emotions. It's the way we think through the world. It's the way that we, we operate on a day-to-day. When we sit down to think about things, we, we're using our soulish realm, right? Our, our, the way we think, the way we do things, or our emotions, so often you will see somebody who's very emotional about things all the time. It's probably because his, his emotion center of his soul is the thing that he's, he's using or she's using to relate all the time. I did have a lot of um, uh, psychologists and quote things and it just got too much for even myself. So I just scrapped it all and went simple. So to understand this is that firstly, our soul is our mind and our emotions. The next one is our body, right? And our body, this body that we have, that we use every day, that walks us around, that allows us to go to the gym and eat and drink and all those sorts of things, this is the suit in which carries our, our soul and our spirit and is decaying, right? Unless one of, you's body, one of your bodies isn't decaying, for the older people in the room, they're like, yeah, well, I understand. Us younger guys, like, well, it's less decaying than, than others, right? But as we get older, as we get older, our body starts to break down. Why? Because it wasn't created, because of sin, it wasn't created now in the fullness and the glory of God that it will continue to decay, right? This is a, a challenge for evolution because evolution explains that we should be getting better, yet the things in our world are getting worse, right? Our bodies break down, our bodies get old. Now, I have no doubt that we will come up with amazing technology that will extend the, our body to try and keep us going. But the, the, the way we live now in, in, from the seed of, of Adam is in sin and our body is decaying because of that. Does that make sense? If anyone has a question, if I am not clear, if something hasn't, please put your hand up. It's not a, this is not a encouragement, feel good sermon. I, I want to teach us something so that we can grab hold of it and then move on. So if you have a question, it's not rude. Please throw your hand up. If you want to yell heresy, maybe just in a nice tone, that would be more helpful toward me. But please do that so we can talk it through. The next one is our spirit, right? I've put our heart there because most people say, I just feel it in my heart, right? It's not my, it doesn't make any sense and I feel it in my heart. What they're really saying is it's in my spirit, man. There's something alive in my spirit, man. Have you ever just made a call on something that rationally from your soul or your mind, will and emotions, it makes no sense, but it, it's just a, or a gut feel, right? I just, I've got a gut feel to do this thing and it comes off and you go, see, I was right. Yeah, but you can't replicate that because it was from your spirit, right? So these are the three parts that we have. Our soul, which is our mind, will and emotions, our spirit and our body. 
I just want to say in the spirit, I've written there that is everlasting part of our being that will go on to eternity, either in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. The reason for that is that the Bible says that having eternal life is knowing Jesus. Right? So when we actually enter into eternal life, it's because we came to know Christ. All other beings, whether they know Christ or not, are eternal in the sense that their spirit doesn't get destroyed. So where does it go? Well, it either goes into reign with Christ, in Christ Jesus, or it goes to not reign with Christ Jesus. Now we can discuss what hell looks like, whether it's a fiery furnace pit, whether it's out of darkness. Regardless, it doesn't matter because the point is, is that those spirits that aren't in God aren't with him. So when you get the realization of the glory of the king, it is going to be terribly tormenting to not know that I get to be in him. Does that make sense? Now I'm not positioning myself on either either stances of heaven and hell theology, which we can talk about for, for hours. But the reality is, is that if you're not in the kingdom realm with God, it really doesn't matter whether I'm burning in a pit in outer darkness or riding camels for the rest of my life. The reality is I'm not there with the king of kings, right? So in this, we see all three things. I want to pause this for a second to explain one more thing um, in, in the next, is that when we talk about salvation... When we talk about salvation, this is what we say. I'm either saved or I'm not saved. But the things with the scriptures is that there is much more depth in scripture than we are just saved or not saved. And this is what tends to happen is that when we don't know the word for ourselves, when someone puts something to us that we can't answer, we get real lost real quick. Because the Bible has some things in it that if you don't know what it's saying are really tricky to understand. Like what? Like this. The Bible says in three tenses, I know there's a lot of words, I'll read it to you, you don't have to read it if you can't. But the Bible says that we are saved in three tenses. It says that we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. So what takes place is that if you grab one of these verses without understanding the complexity of the scripture, you get caught in the fact of, no, we're not really saved, one day we will be. And that's right to a sense. Except for when you read the first one, which is 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 9, it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord God, nor me of his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel of the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. He saved us, right? So I would be right to take that verse and say, see, by this verse, I am saved. Yes, you're right. But then you get stuck when you read the next one down under number two, which is 1 Corinthians. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Paul talks of himself, Paul talks of himself as being saved. He uses the language of us being saved. Well, was Paul not saved already? Then you go to the, to the last one, which is we shall be saved. And I'll use Romans 13, 11. Because it says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us. Again, Paul, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. So in three ways, we see the scripture. And there's other verses there. You can take a photo or I can send you that slide if you want. But there's other verses there that use these three tenses. 
This is incredibly important because if you're talking to somebody, particularly who doesn't believe in Christ, they'll say, you're not saved. Because I've read the Bible, I flicked through it, and I came across Romans 13, and I came across Philippians 2.12. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your God's not a loving God, because you've still got to earn your salvation through fear and trembling. See, when we don't understand how to navigate the scriptures God's given us, we get caught in a tricky place where we say, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I've still got to earn my salvation through fear and trembling. But you've got to understand the context by which these verses are written and what God is saying to us as a people. The cross of Calvary, what Jesus did on the cross, is the power of life by which we live by. So let me show you how these three, verse, how these three tenses work when we understand that we are spirit, soul, body. In our soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions, we can apply the fact that we are being saved. Why? Because Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That as we renew our mind, we become more and more into the, into the tense of salvation that looks like Jesus. Right? So we have the mind of Christ, but as we transform our old mind into the new place that we've been given, we begin to look more and more like Christ. We begin to enter into his salvation more and more. The next one is our spirit. Right, which is where we apply the, um, the we have been saved, right? That he saved us and called us to his holy calling. If you have given your life to Christ, I'm going to make a bold statement, but I, I feel as though I can be challenged on it and I'll feel okay. If you have been saved in Christ, you have given your life, you have truly repented with your heart and confessed with your mouth that he is, with your mouth that he is your Lord and Savior, you cannot lose that. Why am I going to say that? Because it says in my Bible that it is by an incorruptible seed. That Christ is an incorruptible seed. So if my spirit man is saved and hidden in Christ, how in the good Lord's name can it then become corrupted to get out? Not only that, it also says that nothing, I can't remember what the things are, angels, demons, yada, yada, yada. There's a list of four or five things in a verse that's in the scripture that I can't remember. That those things cannot separate us from the love of Christ. So how, again, in the good Lord's name, can I be separated if the Bible tells me the seed's incorruptible, it's imperishable, and I can't be separated? So it's my spirit man that's actually in Christ. How many of you, when you got saved... You got baptized in the, in the fullness of, of Christ. Did you then appear with him at, on the right hand of the Father, seeing the heavenlies? Right? Most of us didn't. Why? Because it didn't play, take place in our soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions. It took place in our spirit. It was our spirit that was seated in Christ. It was our spirit that is now revived and made holy and righteous and sanctified in him. It's our spirit. But our soul, our mind, will, and emotions is still playing catch-up to what's really taken place in our life. Svenny, when you got saved, was it walk in the park to change everything or has it been a challenge every day to renew your life? Challenge every day. Because his, his spirit man got saved, made completely new hidden in Christ, cannot be taken out. But his soul, his mind, will, and emotions are still remembering things of the old life and living from that place. 
So when we have to consider to take the things of life and to walk in righteousness, it's in our soul, our mind, will, and emotions that we consider every day to operate in the kingdom of light, not the kingdom of darkness. It's not our spirit, it's our mind. The last one is the body. And this is where the, the teaching on healing becomes really key. Because a sick body is a body that's not aligned with our spirit that is in Christ. So what we're doing when we're praying for somebody who's sick is that we're trying to align their body, their flesh suit, the earth suit that's dying, to align with their spirit so that they can come back into fullness to continue what God's asked them to do. I believe that in that, in that, uh, uh, I just lost all of the English words that exist in my head. All of them went. There wasn't one I could find. But <laughs> in that scroll that God has written before us, in that scroll that God has written before us, I do not believe that he has scripted in their sickness. I do not believe in all that I am that he has written cancer or depression or anxiety. Those things don't exist in that scroll. So what happens then? Our body gets misaligned or our soul, our mind, will, and emotions gets misaligned with what he's actually said about us. So when someone says, you need to know what God thinks of you, that's aligning with your spirit, man, so that your body can come into alignment, so that your head can come into alignment. If I say I'm not a good parent, I'm not a good husband, I'm not a good this, I'm not a good that, that's not my thought process coming through my spirit. That's my thought process staying in my flesh, in my old man, Right? So what we have to begin to understand is that as God reveals these things through us, we begin to understand that it, are things aligning with my spirit or they're not aligning with my spirit. And I want to say, if you haven't, if you haven't given your, your, your life to Christ, it doesn't matter whether you align it with your spirit because your spirit's fallen. Your spirit is still perpetuating sin. So what does that mean? That means this. When we get to that question, can I have... 15 more minutes, is that okay with everybody? If, you're, if you need to go and get a coffee and you, you've, you're lost, you're zoned out, please go do that. Feel free to go and sit out there. I just want to cover this. I won't be offended, I promise. The challenge between I've been saved and now I have to stop sinning is the simplicity of this. We see in the New Testament that the word sin is used 112 times. Right? The word sin is used 112 times. And there are four different Greek words for the word sin. Four different. So when we read in English, we see sin every time. But the scripture uses four different Greek words to explain the word sin. So when we say to a new believer, which a lot of church leaders and churches still do, you've been saved, well done, congratulations. Your sin's been removed, you're made righteous, well done. Woohoo, please stop sinning. We're like, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. And then they grab the Bible, they go, well, let me explain it to you. Here it is right here. Stop sinning. Some of y'all been sinning. Stop sinning. But what happens is that, that there are four words. I'm going to show them to you. The four words in the New Testament are the word from the bottom, G2266, hamatia, hamatama, hamatano, and animatitos, Right? I'm not going to bore you and explain every one of them, but I wanted to show you the difference between, between predominantly two of them. These four words give us three categories for sin. 
One is to, to live without ever acting outside of the will of God. The other is to have a nature of ungodliness. And the other is being caught in the acts of ungodliness. Okay, so acting outside the will of the Father, never acting outside the will of the Father, having the nature of ungodliness and being caught in the acts of ungodliness. I know there's four words, but the word hamatia and the word hamatama are used almost interchangeably. But hamatama is only used once or twice. But they mean almost the same thing. One is very concrete, the other is, is abstract. So the three, the three categories it gives us. The first, there's only one person who, who can be referred to as anamatatos, which means to never sinned. Who's that? Jesus. We only see the word used once, and it's used in a very interesting place. It's used in John 8, 1 to 10. You don't have to go there. I'll read it to you. But it's when, it's when the Pharisees bring before Jesus the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And the verse says this, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Jesus this they said to, to, to Jesus to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin, amatatetios, without sin, no sin, you've never even entertained a thought of sin, zero sin, cast the first stone. And he bends down twice and he writes in the sand, whatever he writes we can speculate, but... My dad used to always say that he just started listing out the places that they were doing terrible things. I kind of like that. It's like Jesus going, I know. Watch this. I can show that all of you are without, have sinned. But regardless, he then says to them, if you're without sin, throw a stone. No one throws a stone. Then he says to the woman in verse 11, uh, in 10, he says, woman, where are they? He has no one condemned you. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. The word sin that she uses there is this one, is the word hamartano, and it means to miss the mark. But the word sin that we see in most scriptures when it talks about salvation, it uses this word here, hamartia. So one means to miss the mark, not all of them mean to miss the mark, and hamartia, the bottom one, means a nature of sin by which you carry. So Jesus says, there's none without sin, that's only me. Only I take that place. But the second point that's leaves us with is the nature of ungodliness. That word hamartia speaks of the nature of sin. The nature of sin. And it's really easily explained like this. When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were created from the holiness of the earth that God created. Holy, whole, without sin, beautiful in creation. Right? They were designed. They had no thought of sin. They had no understanding. They only knew good. They knew no evil. Right? Then they get deceived. Satan comes along, he deceives them. They eat of the fruit and what enters? The knowledge of good and evil. Now they can depict between good things and bad things. Before they couldn't, they could only see the good things. But now sin has entered and that sin began to decay the generations. Evil began to take over like a cancer. It grew and it grew and it grew until in Psalms 53, it says no one is good, not even one. Sin held mankind at full ransom where the only thing we saw was evil. But then Jesus comes along and he's born from a virgin birth. That's why the birth is so important. He's born from a virgin birth, which is outside the sin of man. 
There was, no, there was no seed of sin passed into Jesus because he comes away from that line and he starts a new line through the spirit, which was the seed, through God, the seed of, of man, which then he puts in, right? He comes away from the seed of sin. He comes into the seed of man. I promise this is all going to tie up in the end and make sense. And I'm four, 14 minutes away. The reason this is so important, and I thought about breaking this in, and we're going to keep talking this through, but is that we operate repeatedly in church through this, this cycle of, of, of sin management, this cycle of through and in and out and again and again. But God is saying in this that in the back end of that, when we've been removed from the line of sin, you are no longer a part of the line of sin. It's been removed in you. That nature is gone. I am no longer a filthy sinner because God removed me from that line of sin. He cleansed me and made me righteous because I've, been, I've died to myself and I've died in the death of Jesus and I've rose again in his new life, right, without sin. But then I still have the last point, which is that we can be caught in the acts of ungodliness. And we see this again in 1 John. John uses the word sin Five, six times he uses the word sin in one small paragraph. And five of those six times he uses the word hamartia. And he says at the end, he says, we, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowshiped with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin nature, hamartia. If we say we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin nature, he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin nature and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then he ends the verse with this. But then once we've been cleansed, he ends it with this. If we say we have not sinned, hamartano, which is the, the act of the flesh, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, we have to distinct between the two. Our nature is gone but we can still operate in sins of unrighteousness or acts of unrighteousness, right? Acts of the flesh, acts that lead us away from him and into darkness, acts that bring death, not life, upon our life. Does that make sense? So when we actually live a life, we live a life, right, that is in, in, our, in our spirit, soul, body. If we can align our, our soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions, sin can reign in that place. Sin can reign in your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. It can make you think awful things. It can make you do awful things through the way you process. But if we can align our soul with our spirit where sin can no longer reign, that's when we start to live from the life of righteousness. That's when we start to live out from God. That's when we start to achieve the things He's asked us to do because we're allowing our spirit to lead and guide us, not our body or our soul. Because these two areas... Our body and our soul are where sin can still control and lead us, can still guide and direct us. But when we live from our place of, of, of our, our spirit man in God, when we live in the spirit, what does the Bible say? We will not gratify the desires of our flesh. It's in our spirit man where sin can no longer reign or have control that we actually live. The reason this is so powerful, the reason this is so incredibly important coming up to what Christ did is that we can't have this spirit renewed, restored and reborn without the power of the cross. That if Jesus didn't come and die for us, 
if Jesus didn't come and lay himself down, even if we aligned ourselves with our spirit man, we would continue to live in sin and fallen brokenness. But because we're able, Christ makes our spirit man brand new. When it says that you are no longer broken, lost, confused, you have become a new creation, our spirit has been made new. Who lives inside us has been made new. Who lives in Christ and Christ in us, that's our spirit man. But when we begin to operate more like this, where everything comes through our spirit, everything comes through our spirit, our body can live in fullness. Our body cannot be broken and tired. Why? Come to me and I'll give you rest. Leave in my spirit and I will give you the rest. When we are tired and broken and living in depression and anxiety and pain and suffering, it's because we're living in our flesh. We haven't actually given that over to, to God. We haven't actually brought that before our spirit man and decided to rule and reign in that place. Does that make sense? Makes sense. Yes. Fantastic. I had no more slides. The reason that we have to grasp this, and, and I hope that you would maybe go and listen to this again or take some of those verses that I gave you, I can send you that slideshow if it's helpful, is because when, when you start to understand that through the scriptures, that we are not caught in the brokenness of sin in our spirit, but it's our, our soul, our mind, and emotion that has to choose life, then we can start to be empowered as the church to make decisions that always walk towards life. That the things that are hurting, the things that are tearing us apart right now can be, can be guided and corralled into our spirit to actually come into life and fruitfulness. Does that make sense? Does anyone have any questions or are we just tongue in for a coffee? No? No questions. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you right now. God, we ask by your spirit that you would begin to reveal our spirit to us. God, that you would begin to reveal how it is we live in the, in the blessings that you have put before us, in the life that you have put before us. God, I just pray right now, Lord, that anything that I said that's not of you, that's not in your kingdom, may it fall away and turn to nothing. But God, the things that you wanted to reveal to us this morning, Lord, may they take root deep in our heart. Father, may we wrestle with them. God, may we go back to your scriptures and turn and turn and turn on pages until we understand what it is that you're saying to us. God, may we hunger and thirst for you. Lord, and I pray, Father, that as, as churches begin to gather around your cross, as churches begin to, to try to understand the perplexity but the amazing part of your cross, Lord, I ask that they would begin just to see you. God, that your name be magnified. Jesus, that although we get so much from the cross, Father, may we remember that it's because of your glory. May we remember that it's because of you and your holiness. Jesus, we love you. God, we honor you. We glorify your name. Holy, holy, holy are you, King Jesus. Father, I just pray a blessing over people as they go, Lord. I just pray that this begin to, to churn deeply inside their spirits, Father that there be more questions and more answers that you provide. Lord, we love you and we honor you. And in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.